and three very different responses. Then Jesus makes his first post-resurrection appearance. He interrupts Mary's weeping, and she has this transformational encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Remember, she is transformed from a mourner to a messenger. Look at the end of verse 17. Go to my brethren, his disciples, Jesus is speaking to Mary, and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. A mourner became a messenger. This morning we'll be focusing on verses 19 through to the end of verse 29. But before we go there, allow me to read a report of an incident that took place much earlier in Jesus' life. In fact, this incident is reported in all three synoptic gospels, which gives us a hint that it found a real mark in the minds and hearts of his disciples, his followers. I'll be reading from Mark's presentation. Jesus, along with Peter and James and John, are rejoining the other disciples when they encounter a man with a demon-possessed son. Listen as I read from Mark chapter 9. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. When the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about? Jesus asked. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy. The spirit often throws him into the fire or into the water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on him and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can? Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Have you ever been there? You believe, but like this father, the circumstances of your life have conspired against you. Sickness, loss, hurt, 
pressure, stress, broken promises, shattered dreams. Indeed, all the troubles that accompany life in a broken world force you to acknowledge your unbelief. Beloved, you're not unique. We are all, to some degree or another, at one time or another, unbelieving believers. That's what working out our salvation as God works in us is all about. Continuing to grow from unbelief to belief. This episode in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 29, displays Jesus' initiatives to do just that in, his, in the lives of those of his closest ministry companions. And he's prepared to do similar things in your life and in mine. Please stand with me as we read together this passage of Scripture, beginning at verse 19, and I'll read through to the end of verse 29. John chapter 20. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and then said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... Their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails, and put my fingers into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. This is the Lord's word to us this morning. Please be seated. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words. We accept them as inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient and supernaturally preserved so that we have this reliable copy to read, study, memorize, and even ponder. As we engage in these kinds of activities with open minds, teachable and receptive hearts, you move us from unbelief to belief. And so we come inviting you to to teach us, correct us, reprove us, and train us in righteousness so that we might be prepared for every good work, individually and collectively, as a localized expression of the body of Christ, indeed as the rock community church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I do believe, but help me to overcome my unbelief. That father's plea appears to represent an accurate reflection of what Jesus' disciples were experiencing here in John chapter 20. In in Luke's account, Luke chapter 24, verse 11, we are told that they first heard that Jesus had risen from the dead from Mary Magdalene and the other women. These words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Surely, we can sympathize with their initial response to this news of someone rising from the dead. Beloved, that would have been difficult to believe. I can see myself admitting, I believe, but help me to overcome my unbelief. I've shared previously that one of my interpretive strategies when approaching a a narrative piece of scripture that I develop a chart or complete a chart that looks something like this and you can't see it but across the top of the chart are the names of all the contributors to this particular narrative so in verses 19 to 29 you you of course always have a narrator when a story is being told so the first column is the narrator the second column is Jesus because he make some statements here and then we have the other disciple and finally in the final column we have Thomas and so what I do is I just take the passage of scripture and cut and paste all the things that the narrator or has says are in this first column all the things that Jesus says are in the second column and so on and work through the passage in that way And as I did that with this particular passage, once the chart was all completed, it became clear to me that Jesus' words carry this whole story. And so this morning, we're going to pay close attention 
to what Jesus said during this episode with his disciples. Jesus' gracious post-resurrection appearance helped his disciples to overcome their unbelief. And that word gracious is there intentionally. It's an intentional insertion. Jesus has already appeared to Mary Magdalene outside the empty tomb. He told her to stop clinging to what is past. Stop being consumed by your profound sense of loss. The past is the past. It's time to move on. I'm in the process of ascending to my Father. So go and tell the others. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. But it wasn't enough, was it? You could say that their response to Mary's announcement was, we believe, but help us to overcome our unbelief. And Jesus was gracious enough to do just that. Even though these disciples had done nothing to earn it or deserve it. In fact, they, they may have done just the opposite. They had de deserted Jesus in his hour of greatest need when he was being arrested the Garden of Gethsemane. They had denied him when questioned in that high priest's courtyard. And they thought it was nonsense when they, were told, when they were told he had risen from the dead. Jesus didn't owe these men another minute of his time or efforts. So seeing the time and effort, the energies that he was willing to continue investing in these unbelieving believers is remarkable. Grace on display. A grace that extends to you and to me. When we find ourselves in a similar place. I do believe, but help me to overcome my unbelief. Not only are we saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we are kept by his gracious initiatives. And that is what's happening here in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 29. Jesus' gracious post-resurrection appearance helped his disciples to overcome their unbelief. And he can do the same for you and for me. Notice Jesus' initial greeting in verse 19. Peace be with you. And again in verse 21. Peace be with you. And yet again in verse 26. You may want to underline them. Peace be with you. Jesus' gracious Post-resurrection appearance included 
expressions of peace. Admittedly, this was, in fact, it still is today, a common Hebrew greeting. Shalom, peace. But Jesus promises, previous promise in John chapter 14, verse 27, and John chapter 16, verse 33, along with this repetition, rapid repetition, three times he says exactly the same thing. It seemed to indicate that Jesus is imparting peace to his disciples, wishing peace on them, blessing them with peace. Think about it. This was their first encounter with the resurrected Lord. Last time these disciples had seen Jesus was in the rearview mirror as they were dashing from the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm sure they were suffering from shame, knowing they had disappointed, deserted, and denied Jesus in his hours of torment and torture. They also had considered that first report of his resurrection as nonsense and refused to believe. Even though he'd clearly predicted that he was headed to Jerusalem, he was going to be killed, buried, but would rise again in three days. And presently, they were all huddled behind locked doors for fear of the religious, Jewish religious establishment that had just crucified Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears amongst them. Right there in the room with them. To say that Jesus' announcement, peace be with you, was just a, a common greeting, seems to be a gross understatement. Jesus was not there to destroy them or to even spank them. He was there to impart peace on them. Beloved, I don't think you and I have to look too far to realize how elusive peace is in our world today. Interpersonal relationship breakdowns, divorces, road rage and turf wars, parliamentary toxicity and bipartisan politics, polarized countries and warring nations. The lack of peace in our world today is an epidemic. And to varying degrees, it touches each and every one of our lives. And yet it remains the longing of every human heart to live in peace. The first step toward any kind of lasting peace is to have a personal encounter with the resurrected Prince of Peace. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 1 reads, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is still desiring to impart peace to you and to me. Peace be with you. Do you remember his promise to the twelve and John chapter 14, verse 27. Remember what it was? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Nor let it be fearful. Peace. And once we have that peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 tells us, the God of peace himself sanctifies us entirely. And through that sanctifying process, we actually become emissaries of his peace. Any kind of peace apart from God is a pseudo-peace. It's temporary, man-made, Fabricated, maybe imposed, but it will not last. Jesus offers us true peace. A peace with God that then leads to a lasting peace with one another. Lord, I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. Verse 21, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So how was Jesus sent by the Father? John chapter 1, verse 14 reads, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember how John Piper paraphrases that verse? And the Word became flesh and pitched his tent in our backyard. Apostle Paul provides a fuller explanation of the incarnation of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. At that point in human history, God dressed himself in human flesh and walked among us in the person of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And in the same way that Jesus was sent by the Father, he was now sending his disciples into the world. Remember how he had prayed for them in John chapter 17, beginning at verse 15? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, 
I also have sent them into the world. It's interesting to note that all four gospel accounts include a version of this same sending. It's often referred to as the Great Commission. And the most familiar verses are found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. But it's also found in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Then again in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 to 49. And some even include Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as another example of Jesus' commissioning of his disciples. Jesus' gracious post-resurrection appearance included an expression of purpose. Now let's have a look at the next couple of verses. They present some, some real interpretive challenges. Let me read verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Folks, I could spend the rest of our time giving you the options, optional interpretations of this particular verse, trying to explain what is happening here. But rather than report on all the speculation, let me just give you a few points for, like food for thought, something that you can ponder as you come across this verse. The first thing I'd like to point out is the writer's allusion to the creation account. Clearly, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 reads, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We shouldn't be surprised that the writer of this gospel would refer back to the Genesis creation account. Just look at how the gospel begins, and the word became flesh, you know all that, the first three verses. So here we find Jesus breathing on them and they're receiving the Holy Spirit is somehow similar to what God did when he breathed life into his original creation. It's going to require a supernatural, intimate involvement of God. Apart from whom, this will be impossible. You will not receive the Holy Spirit apart from him. Then secondly, I'd point out that this receiving of the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential if these disciples are going to fulfill the mission or the purpose that they're being sent into the world to accomplish. The third thing I would suggest is that Jesus' disciples did not actually receive the Spirit until Acts chapter 2. Why would I say that? Because they continue to struggle with unbelief until Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, these uneducated, ordinary men 
become extraordinary representatives of Jesus Christ. And they could not be deterred. And I'm not saying that their lives were perfect or struggle-free, but they became a formidable force to the point where they were willing to give up their life. They were passionate to celebrate, demonstrate, and proclaim the gospel. They were unstoppable. That happens in Acts chapter 2 forward. Verse 23, it doesn't get any easier. Look at this. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Uh Uh-oh. So does that mean that you and I can forgive sins? This week, well, I subscribe to a blog called Cripplegate. And it comes out on at least one a week, probably. Arrives right in my email inbox. And uh, I think September 27th, when was that? Thursday? Anyway, a Cripplegate blog posting arrived. Listen to the title. Three Steps to Understanding a Tricky Passage. And in the brackets, John chapter 20, verse 23. How good is that? Thank you, Lord. Let me give you the three steps that he lays out in this blog posting and then his explanation of this verse. Step number one, examine the context. What precedes it and what comes after? What's happening around this verse? Number two, examine the parallel passages. So if there's something in the other three synoptic gospels that reports on this same incident, pay close attention to that. And number three, examine the analogy of faith. And by analogy of faith, he means the Bible does not contradict itself. It just doesn't. God would not contradict himself. So we've got to keep all that in mind as we look at this particular verse and and what it's saying about forgiveness. Here's his explanation. John chapter 20, verse 23, seems to be teaching that there is forgiveness that comes through believing the gospel, and the gospel goes into the world through the preaching of others. Thus, John chapter 20, verse 23, does not teach that individual believers have the power to bestow forgiveness, but rather it points to how the gospel will go into the world with the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the Word of God. That's what verse 23 is talking about. Bill Bright, some of you may recognize that name. He was the founder of Campus Crusade, a Christian ministry on university campuses that had a great impact back in the day. In 1952, I don't know whether you noted this or not, he is the one that, that wrote that famous little tract, Four Spiritual Laws, that helped us to share the gospel clearly. I remember in Bible college learning his definition of evangelism. Here it is. Simply taking the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit 
and leaving the results to God. Simply taking the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. That's an important for, uh, definition for us to remember. Because the purpose Jesus expressed to those disciples in that, lock, in that locked room on the evening of his resurrection Sunday was not exclusive to them. All disciples of Jesus are sent ones or missionaries to use the Latin term which means sent to send. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. And all of this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given to us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. And so as we gather in this place, as the Rock Community Church, week after week, to worship God and to be equipped to spur one another on so that we can be scattered and go out into our world where we can celebrate, demonstrate, and proclaim the gospel. Sharing the good news that your sins can be forgiven if we repent and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, with anyone and everyone who will take the time to listen. Lord, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Verse 27, Jesus speaks again. Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believe. Jesus' gracious post-resurrection appearance included an expression of proof. Thomas was absent for Jesus' first appearance to his disciples. We're not told why. It was eight days later before Jesus made his second appearance where Thomas was now present. In the meantime, Thomas had displayed some unbelievably stubborn skepticism. Didn't matter who claimed it, who had possibly seen the risen Lord, didn't matter to Thomas. He was determined to remain an unbelieving believer until he could, well, to use his own words, as I see in his hands the imprints of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Think about that. Who would want to do that? Thomas has dug his heels in 
with no guarantee that Jesus was going to reappear. But then on the eighth day, what a display of grace. Reminds me of that lost sheep story in Luke chapter 15. Jesus asked, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? John chapter 10, Jesus made the claim, I am the good shepherd. And here in John chapter 20, we see that good shepherd pursuing a stubborn, unbelieving believer. Thomas yields when confronted with the risen Christ. My Lord and my God. His skepticism melts away like ice in a hot summer day. The repeated pronoun emphasizes Thomas's personal commitment. My Lord, my God. Jesus is still winning skeptics today. Pray for them. Love them. Set an example. Model the Christian life before them. Share the gospel with them. And then leave the results to God. May Thomas's story remind us that we never know what God will do in a person's life. We are called to faithfully do our part, to go as sent ones. Lord, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Verse 29, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. Jesus' gracious post-resurrection appearance included an expression of promise. A promise that applies to all those who will believe without demanding to see. Thomas demanded to see and touch before he would believe the resurrected Jesus. Jesus was affirming that the testimony of reliable witness was more than enough evidence for saving faith. Bible scholar James Boyce provides the following explanation. I believe he is speaking not of a subjective faith, but of a satisfied faith. He's speaking of a faith that is satisfied with what God provides and is therefore not yearning for visions, miracles, esoteric experiences, or various forms of success as evidence of God's favor. It's not referring to that. It's a satisfied faith. Two post-resurrection encounters, appearances, separated by eight days on both occasions, Jesus was speaking with unbelieving believers. Perhaps we have some 
unbelieving believers amongst us this morning. You're trusting Christ alone for your salvation. Believing that he is the Christ, the Son of God, but. But what? You have questions? Concerns? Doubts? A sinful habit that you can't take off? Unhealthy appetites? You're distracted. James offers quite a trilogy. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Maybe it's the pursuit of some kind of supernatural encounter or experience that James Boyce alluded to. Lord, I believe, but help me to overcome my unbelief. Whatever it is that's undermining, sabotaging, or impairing our belief. Hebrews chapter 12 is one of those verses you'll just want to put a nail in. Tie a rope around it and hang on for dear life. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Note who the author and perfecter of our faith is. Philippians chapter 2 informs us that we do have, we are party to this whole sanctification process or becoming like Christ. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Beloved, I'm going to keep saying it week after week after week. The best you and I can do is to put ourselves in places and develop habits that invite the Holy Spirit to do his transformational work in our lives. That's the best we can do. But that's all we need to do. Because God will do the rest. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. May we be found spurring one another on in this regard. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus' gracious initiatives. Not just in the lives of his intimate ministry companions back in the first century Palestine, but in our lives right here in Woodstock, Ontario, 2019. We do believe. Help us to continue overcoming our unbelief. We don't want to remain unbelieving believers. Grow us, we pray individually and collectively. 
may we be found faithful, working out our salvation in the power of your indwelling spirit for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.